I, I thought it was a good to see victory. A lot of guys stepped up. These games, you just find a way to win. Uh, that's what it comes down to, and, you know, it's a total team effort. This is where Wisconsin gathers to talk sports. Packers, Brewers, Badgers, Bucks. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Now, here's your host, Grant Bills. You know, as a sports fan or a sports talker like myself, uh, it's very easy to get frustrated with players that are injured. Oh, you got a sore calf or you got a tweaked hammy. You got a shoulder that's not quite right. It's easy for us to sit back and say, oh, be a man, tough it out. Come on. You know, we've seen a couple Packers players this year. Christian Watson missed time early. Jair Alexander, I guess, has got a banged up shoulder. Doesn't look like he's going to play this Sunday. He already missed quite a bit of time already this season with a bad back. And it's easy for us to sit here and say, oh, come on, tough it out. Uh, I tell you what, I am a hypocrite in that department. I'm a baby. I'm a big baby. Uh, I recently started going to the gym again. By recently, I mean like the last week. Because I moved this summer and it's a whole thing. You gotta, you gotta cancel the old gym. and It's not just about starting at the new gym. You gotta go to the new gym and like get in a routine and you got to know where everything is. And like, I don't like standing. I'm very self-conscious at the gym because everyone there is like, oh, I got my big jug of water and my notebook to write down my reps. And I'm basically there. I'm like, I just don't want to get, I am not trying to get fat. I don't want to put on weight. That's why I'm here. Uh, but I, I went the other night and lifted some lifts that I have in months because I've been at the gym. Just the simple tricep pull down. It's an easy lift to do without looking stupid. Uh, and my my elbow, not my elbows, but some muscle to the side of my elbow. They're just they're they're all hot today. And I don't even do physical activity for a job. And I'm like, I, I should go home. Meanwhile, I sit behind this microphone. Jair Alexander's such a baby. God, he's got a jacked up back. He can't even play in an NFL f- football game. So it's good every once in a while uh, when I have a physical ailment of any kind. Mostly when I have physical ailments, it's just because I sleep on my shoulder weird or something. It's a good reminder of how big of a baby I am. Uh, always good to get that reminder so I can color my takes about injured players who aren't out there battling uh, in an NFL football game every weekend. This is the Wisco Sports Show. My name is Grant Bills. I hope you've had an awesome day. Tonight's going to be terrific. David Gasper reviewing the brew coming up just after 5 o'clock. Not only will we talk about the Craig Council news this week, but we have some Brewers news. I guess Brewers news, uh, Brewers buzz, Brewers rumors. Of course, they stem from a Ken Rosenthal article, which is just the bringer of death. Like when you see Ken Rosenthal writing about the Brewers, uh, you can just kiss the season goodbye, kiss one of your favorite players goodbye, uh, kiss the future goodbye. Something bad is, is coming. So we'll talk about the Brewers in general. Most of it will be negative. David Gasper reviewing the Brew at 5.15 or so, and then Mike Clemens will join us at 5.30. Temple and Heilprin will take over at 6 o'clock. They'll be live at Monks and Sun Prairie. So if you're in the Madison area and you want to stop out, enjoy the show live, be a face in the crowd, as the big unit would say, and get some drink specials, enjoy some food, maybe watch Thursday Night Football. The Bucks will be on, lots of TVs at Monks over in Sun Prairie. So stop by, or at the very least, just listen to the show on the radio. You get some good Padgers talk. Preview for the Northwestern game with Zach and Jesse, who are two of the best. I would say the two best, uh, but to be fair to uh, some other great Badgers voices and writers, I'll say two of the best. Uh, they'll be taken over at six o'clock. So the next couple hours will be great. Uh, a programming note about tonight's show. 
I don't think I'm going to take any calls tonight. I was doing the math. It's like, well, I got to I got to be quick after five o'clock to get to Gasper so we can get him out in time to then get to Mike Clemens. And I I'm looking over my notes for the show and I was like, well, what if we just didn't take any calls tonight? Uh, I have a lot to say. There's certainly a lot to talk about. We have two great guests. So I have just busied the phone lines. I, I don't think I'm going to take any calls tonight. Uh, and I will remind you of that throughout the show. Because if you're not listening right now, you tune in in 10 minutes and try to call. Might be confused. Now you can tweet at me. I was go Grant. And I can't wait to talk to you tomorrow. But I, I think we're going to go callerless tonight. And I know a lot of people love calls. I, I don't think sports radio should exist without calls personally. But sometimes it's all calls. And I know that's not everyone's bag. So tonight we're just going to turn the phones off. Uh, and we're just going to talk. You and me so to speak. I know that's not how it works, but that's how it's supposed to feel, right? But I am on Twitter, at Wisco Grant, so you can tweet at me. Last night was really hectic. Uh, Bill Michaels' huddle went up until 8. Huddle was fun. I had a great time with Bill. Week 10 is gross. The best game of this weekend is probably Niners at Jags, but it's at noon, and we're not even going to see that game in this part of the country. We're going to get Saints at Vikings. Can't wait to bet the Vikings in that game. You tell me I can bet against the Saints and against Derek Allen and Derek Carr or Dennis Allen and get points? Yes, please. So that'll be our noon game. America's game of the week, the 3.30 game on Fox, will be the Giants at the Cowboys. That has a spread of 16, 17 points, depending on the book and depending on when you check. So that is disgusting. Weird week of football. Chiefs, Dolphins, and Eagles are all on bye. So that'll make it a messy week. That's what we talked about on the huddle last night. I get home from the huddle around 8.30. There's a Bucks game on. They were hosting the Pistons last night, and the CMAs were on. I think there was also a Republican debate last night. I saw some tweets. Did someone come after Lester Holt? Did I see that correctly? That was like on my third or fourth spot on my list of priorities. Alan Jackson and Zach Brown Band were performing last night. Margaritaville, that was nice. Kenny Chesney and Mac McAnally teaming up on Pirate Looks at 40. That was, <laughs> that was very sad. Uh, Mac McAnally carries the torch now, so paired heads, we got to you got to wrap our arms around Mac. He's a guy who gets it. Also, shout out to Carolyn Jones, who joined the Zach Brown band, what, within the last year? Uh, is open for Buffett a lot. She's nine months pregnant, rolling in and performing at the CMAs to honor Jimmy Buffett with Alan Jackson and Zach Brown band last night. So that was really cool. I turned on the CMAs because the Bucks were cruising to a win over the Pistons. I thought, finally, a comfortable win. They're going to win this game by, I don't know, 15 points, 20 points, really the first comfortable win of the year. You need wins like that, especially on night one of a back-to-back. Looked comfortable. So I was comfortable switching off the Bucks game, turning on the CMAs, and then Giannis got ejected. So now as we step into the NBA lounge here, I got to call balls and strikes. I'll be fair to Giannis and be fair to the game last night. You know, it's not that Giannis did nothing. I saw, if you, <laughs> I saw people tweeting last night. And I've talked to people throughout the day. He did four hours earlier with Bill, took some calls and, and read a lot of tweets. Giannis didn't even do anything. Well, you know, Giannis did already have one tech. With a little bit of a stare down, a brief stare down, just a tiny stare down. He opened the door for the ref. And that's what I saw our friend Bodie tweet about last night. And while I, I, I believe Bodie is trolling and being difficult on purpose, as he sometimes, a lot of times, does. Giannis did open the door for that ref to make the call. Now, the call was really stupid, of course. It was terrible. It was really dumb. And even worse, the ref that called the technical on Giannis and, and ostensibly threw him out of the game. I don't know if that's the correct word usage there. It just felt right. The, the ref that 
that called the foul, called the technical, that led to the ejection. It was the ref coming from behind. It was the ref coming from half court. It wasn't the ref on the baseline that was right there in front of the play. So it was so stupid. It completely changed the trajectory of the game, completely ruined the experience and devalued the experience of lots of fans that bought tickets to go to Pfizer Forum on a Wednesday night in November. It was awful. It was terrible. And it's so frustrating when these leagues get in their own way. And if you watch sports every day or listen to sports talk every day, and, and this is something that you like set your, your watch to, you set your life to sports, right? You watch a ton of sports. You notice this, right? Especially in the NBA and especially in Major League Baseball when these leagues get in their own way. The NFL can get in its own way all at once. It, it doesn't matter. The NFL can be a, a proverbial bull in a china shop they can be clumsy with their PR they are clumsy with their PR we have years and years of experience with it now they can be clumsy with PR uh they can be poor in their decision making they can handle officiating poor they can do all of these things wrong it won't matter it's the NFL the NBA and Major League Baseball they need to be a bit more precise with some of the decisions that they make and the ways in which they handle this that and the other thing for example baseball every team should be playing on Memorial Day Every, every team should be playing on Memorial Day. It's not hard. Everyone's off of work. Everyone is probably outside, maybe grilling, maybe hanging out with friends. Maybe the aunts and uncles and cousins are over at the house. There should be a baseball game on the TV. How do you not have all of your teams playing on Memorial Day? Major League Baseball getting in its own way. The NBA. The NBA has a problem with its stars not playing. And the NBA has a problem with November and December games being very boring. The NBA created a mid-season tournament don't don't take my opinion don't take my word for it that november and december games can be boring the nba came out and said we need to do something in november and december because these games are boring so the nba two problems they have a problem with their stars not playing and they have a problem with boring games in november and december and yet on a night in november on a night that chris middleton already isn't playing we're ejecting Giannis for something that small and that insignificant? Yes, I guess by the letter of the law, and the pool report indicated this after the game last night when they talked to the refs, there was a bit of a, an intimidation stance or whatever. But when you turn on commercials for the NBA, when you're watching the NBA on TNT or ESPN and they run commercials promoting upcoming games, it's that kind of dunk and reaction from Giannis that they'll promote. And that's the stupid thing about it. When the NFL finds their players, when the NBA throws out guys like that, it's those types of plays that end up on highlight reels and that end up on promotional videos and, and posters. It's so dumb. The NFL is a league that can afford to get in its own way. Major League Baseball and, and the NBA, not quite. These are leagues that have to be just a bit, bit smarter. Uh, and last night, it's like, okay, here's the NBA eating itself yet again. On the actual basketball side of things, we can talk a little Bucks basketball. I did some research today. I did a deep dive today because we're all paying attention to the Bucks defense, not just Bucks fans, but NBA people nationally, right? That follow the league as a whole. They're wondering without Drew Holiday, are the Bucks still going to be able to defend? Yes, added offensively with Damian Lillard, but Drew Holiday is underrated. Everybody talks about how great his defense is. Everybody talks about what he brought to Milwaukee on the defensive end of the floor. The Bucks sacrificing that, bringing in Damian Lillard for some more offense. So we're all looking at Milwaukee thinking, well, how's their defense going to respond? What's this team going to look like? So we're all paying attention to the Bucks defense. Brooke was outstanding from the jump. 
Detroit, for whatever reason, seemed intent on trying Brooke Lopez at the rim. That was poor. Brooke Lopez is blocking shots right from the jump last night. Now, at the end of the game, I'd like to say that Milwaukee's defense drilled down a little bit. On some possessions, that's true, but Detroit got a couple good looks there in the last few minutes as the Bucks mounted their comeback and just missed them. Now, you need that. You need the opposing team to miss shots every once in a while. That's not a crime. But through six games, the Bucks have been outscored by over five points per 100 possessions. And that ratio, right, that number is indicative of a team that over an entire season is going to win around 30 games. Now, the expectation for the Bucks is they went upwards of 50, right? But being outscored, albeit just through the first six games of the season, being outscored by over five points per 100 possessions, that's a number that would be indicative of a team that wins 28 to 34 games. Not good. Not good at all. Now, there are some numbers that should regress a little bit. I was looking at some of the statistics. Seth Partnow of The Athletic used to work for the Bucks. Analytics guy wrote the mid-range theory. He's been on the show. Shared a couple of these statistics. Bucks opponents are hitting 49% of their mid-range shots. The average is 42. So if that number simply just balances out over a larger sample size, the Bucks defense with no changes will improve. Bucks opponents are also hitting 38% of their three-point shots above the break, which are not high percentage three-point shots relatively. You want the corners, you want the wings. Above the break three-point shots are the ones farthest away from the hoop. Bucks opponents are shooting 38% on those shots. League average is 35 so if the Bucks change nothing, chances are just a little bit of shooting regression from Bucks opponents will make that defense look a little bit better. But some underlying numbers that I found really interesting, and I wanted to share these with you to begin the show, because we're all talking and thinking about the Bucks defense. Yeah, Dame time is here. Got a closer, got someone who can get buckets in crunch time. But the defense, what's the defense going to look like? We've all been talking about this. So I have some specific numbers that I want to share with you that will help us kind of contextualize and watch this defense and, and really see... Are they getting better here? Are they improving here? Are they struggling here, right? So cleaning the glass, that's a database you probably heard of. Think of cleaning the glass as pro football focus. They have a lot of specific advanced basketball statistics. Well, cleaning the glass has a statistic called location EFG or location effective field goal percentage. It's a number that ranks the quality of your opponent's shots. How good or how bad are you at giving up good looks against the other team? Well, the Bucks right now are actually best in the NBA at forcing the toughest shots, the worst shots. Bucks opponents are forced to take really bad shots, which when the Bucks are getting outscored by over five points per possession or per 100 possessions, you would never think that's the case. You'd think the Bucks are giving up wide open threes. You'd think the Bucks are giving up layups. That's not the truth. They're actually giving up really poor shots for their opponents. That's what you want. However, a lot of these shots are, are going in. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. The Bucks lead the league with only 23% of their opponent's shots coming within four feet of the rim. They're not giving up looks at the rim. They're not giving up layups. But they're last in accuracy allowed in those shots. Two completely different ends of the spectrum. The Bucks are giving up really, really difficult, really hard shots, and yet all of those shots are going in. That should not make sense. That should, that should not compute. However, there's a reason. And Seth Partnow wrote about this today in The Athletic. Bucks opponents are making 85% of their shots at the rim while playing in transition. So the Bucks are giving up so many fast break points. Every time a defensive uh, rebound comes down with the other team, they're getting out and they're running and they're making shots at the rim 85% of the time. I mean, they're, they're, they're giving away baskets in transition. Opponents are hitting uh, 43% 
of their defensive rebounds into a fast break look. So 43% of the Bucks misses are turning into fast break opportunities for the other team. It's a nightmare. 43%. The league average is 30, right? This is such an interesting mix of numbers for the Bucks, and I hope that this is making sense. I had to read the story from Seth Partnow a couple times today. I'll repeat myself and I'll, I'll abbreviate kind of what I just went through. The Bucks lead the NBA in opponent shots coming within four feet of the basket. They don't give up layups. However, they're last in the NBA in accuracy allowed on those shots. Opponents are making all their shots at the rim, and that's because opponents are making 85% of their shots at the rim while playing in transition. The Bucs are giving up transition buckets. They're letting teams run on them, and those teams that are running on the Bucs are scoring at a crazy, crazy clip. So right now, as we watch the Bucs, and we try to focus on the defense and what it looks like under Adrian Griffin and what it looks like without Drew Holiday, the number one goal right now and the number one area of emphasis right now for the Bucs has to be to find ways to limit fast-break opportunities. The half-court defense has actually been okay. They're showing correct principles, and they're forcing the type of shots you want to force. I think those shots are going in at a little bit higher clip than you could expect to continue around the rest of the year. I think there'll be some regression there. The Bucks' half-court defense is actually doing proper things. Their principles are good. It's that basically 50% of the time, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. It's 43% of the time. 43% of rebounds for the opposition are turning into fast-break opportunities. That's way too much. So as we watch the Bucks and we talk about the Bucks' defense, Priority number one, focus number one, preventing fast break opportunities for opponents. That's it. If they do that, if they get that figured out, they're actually just fine on defense. They're just fine. They're forcing the correct shots that they're forcing opponents to the right area of the floor. They just need to find a way to limit fast break opportunities for the opposition. We'll talk more about this coming back. A little more on the Bucks, and then I want to get into the Packers at 4.30. A lot more of the Wisco Sports Show coming up next. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Wisco Sports Show, appreciate you listening. Going to speak with David Gasper about the Craig Council news. Uh, Brewers offseason looks like it could be a bumpy ride according to Ken Rosenthal we'll talk about that at five o'clock Mike Clements join us at 5 30 Temple and Heilprin coming up at six o'clock oh what a night it will be not taking phone calls tonight just feel like I got a lot to talk about we need to take a break we'll reset and then we'll get back to being ridiculous tomorrow <laughs> you can tweet at me though at Wisco Grant if you'd like started the show by talking about some cold hard numbers some facts, some figures, as Mac would say, and Always Sunny. The facts, the figures, the data, the numbers. It's a great episode of Always Sunny, by the way. Everyone's talking about the Bucks' defense, and it has been far from perfect. But I think nationally, right, the big picture conversation, if you were to turn on, you know, Bill Simmons, Zach Lowe, one of these big picture NBA podcasts that's not focused on the Bucks or not focused on any team in particular, you know, a lot of these hosts would say, well, Drew Holiday's gone. And the Bucks defense sucks because of it, because they're down one good defender. Now, losing Drew Holiday doesn't help, right? You're not like Drew Holiday is an outstanding defender. We've talked about that so much the last couple of years. But the Bucks defensive shortcomings, I guess I would say, 
They're a little bit more complex than that. I did a little bit of a deep dive into the the numbers, the facts, the figures today. And Seth Partnow put out an awesome piece at The Athletic. I recommend you go read it. It's a little heady. You might have to let me read that one more time. It, trust me, I, I have to read things multiple times. My brain is uh, <laughs> I'm no engineer. I'm no Eric on I-90. It takes me a little bit to, to soak in some of these numbers. But Seth Partnow wrote a great story on why the Bucks defense is struggling. And it's not struggling for the reasons that you'd expect. The Bucks are forcing their opponents to take the types of shots you would want your opponents to take. Cleaning the glasses, location, effective field goal percentage. It's just a, it's a fancy staff for saying, do you give up good or bad shots? The Bucks rank first in the league. They force their opponents to take the worst shots of any team in the league. They're avoiding shots at the rim. They're avoiding wide open threes. They are forcing the toughest, worst shots. Best in basketball. However, their last inaccuracy allowed on those shots. So the Bucks are forcing tough shots, but all those tough shots are going in. It's backwards. It's, it's two opposite ends of the spectrum. The reason for that and the reason that the Bucks' defense is so poor, again, they've been outscored by over five points per 100 possessions so far this season, which is uh, th- that would indicate a team that's going to win like 28 to 32 games. That's a number of a horrible team. Well, horrible is relative. The Bucks are supposed to be finals contenders. Finals contenders do not win 30 games, right? So the reason that the Bucks' defense is bad and the reason that they're Uh, accuracy allowed on the shots they allow is so poor despite those shots being tough is that because bucks opponents are making 85 percent of their shots at the rim while playing in transition the bucks are getting killed killed in transition bucks opponents are hitting the break off of 43 percent of their defensive rebounds league average is 30 percent so what that means is basically when teams get out and run on the bucks they score and teams get out and run on the bucks a lot a lot, a lot. So they're giving up a ton of transition opportunities and they're defending those transition opportunities very, very poorly. That's why the Bucks' defense is struggling. Not necessarily because they're getting gashed in the half court because Drew Holiday isn't here. Again, doesn't help. You'd rather have Drew Holiday defensively than not. But it's not that their defensive uh, numbers and their defensive effectiveness in the half court have gone down the tubes. They're forcing the right amount of shots. A lot of those shots are going in. I think part of that will regress to the mean uh, both in the half court and, and in transition. Like, opponents are hitting 49% of their mid-range shots against the Bucks. League average is 42. That'll probably start to come back down to earth with the Bucks doing nothing at all other than just maintaining. The Bucks are allowing 38% of three-pointers above the break to go in. League average is 35. So teams are out-punching their weight class a little bit on some of these tougher shots that the Bucks are allowing. And that's true in transition as well. Uh, transition three numbers for the Bucks are really jack. Bucks opponents are hitting 48% of their transition threes. That's 10 percentage points above the league average. So some of these numbers are going to come down, but the point remains, the Bucks are giving up way too many transition opportunities and they're getting scored on in those transition opportunities. And that's why their defense stinks. I got a tweet here from Q. Q says, and I appreciate you, Q, you're one of our Bucks callers. He says, any stats on offensive rebounds seems like this is weighed down this year and leading to more fast break opportunities for opponents. So Q, I looked it up over the break. I would not have been able to tell you where the Bucks rank in the NBA in uh, rebounding percentage, offensive rebounding percentage. So I Googled it, NBA's team offensive rebounding percentage. So it's not total offensive rebounds. It's offensive rebounding percentage. Now the best team in basketball 
offensively rebounds 32% of the time, 33% of the time. It's Utah at 32.9%. The Bucks are all the way down 28th. They're only better than the Thunder and the Lakers at 19%, which, you know, you, you could take that statistic and run with it lots of different ways. You could say that it's a bad thing. You could say that it's a good thing. Well, I don't know if you could say it's a good thing. They're close to last in basketball. You don't want to be close to last in anything. Um, but the Bucks at their peak in 2021, and I think in, in 2020 when they won the title, or, or 2021 and then 2022, I, I still think that the Bucks were better the year after they won the title. Chris Middleton just got hurt. And that happens a lot in sports. You don't often win it the year that you're the best team. It often sneaks up on you a little bit. That's true in basketball, and, and I think that's true in in football, especially. Like, I think the Packers might have been better in 2011 than they were in 2010, but they won in 2010 because that's how the weird world of sports works sometimes. The Bucks, when they were at their peak, beat the tar out of you. They would wear on you. They beat you up on the offensive glass, and, and they were a blunt force object. That's how they would win. That isn't exactly better how they've been playing basketball this year. Again, only through six games, but they're 28th out of 30 NBA teams in offensive rebounding percentage. So that's not why they're giving up transition. It's not like the Bucs are gambling on a lot of offensive rebounds and failing and giving up transition points. Eric Name asked Adrian Griffin about this the other night, uh, and I saved it here somewhere. I'm scrolling. Here it is. Today at The Athletic, uh, that's not what I'm looking for actually here. Let me get this for you, Q, because I want to read this one more time. I'd read you the audio, but it was, it was at the pregame interview, so there's not audio on, like, the Bally Sports website or anything for it. So the only person who really heard this and reported on it was Eric Name. Uh, let's see here. Scrolling. Here it is. Before tonight's game, I shared that number with Adrian Griffin and asked what the Bucks have been doing to try to limit the number of live ball defensive rebounds that turn into transition possessions. So I'm going to read you his response. Yes, it's been a point of emphasis as far as crashing the offensive glass and forcing teams to take it out, and that's what we're going to help. That's what we're going to do to help us set up our defense. Again, it's extremely early, and we're still building habits, but this is one thing we're looking towards as far as stressing every day. It's about finishing off our offensive possessions with a crash on the boards, but you've just got to make great decisions. Sometimes against really fast teams, you may have to sprint back, but you got to do one or the other. Either you're crashing hard or you're sprinting back. Your first three steps have to be a sprint, no in between. I think that's probably the biggest stressor that we're talking to them about. Either you're crashing the glass extremely hard or you're sprinting back extremely hard. So the Bucks are in a, in a no man's land here. They're giving up a ton of transition points, way over league average. I, what did I say? 42% of the Bucks misses are getting turned into transition opportunities way too much. And, and then the, the shooting percentage off those transition opportunities is massive. So the Bucks are letting team run on or letting teams run on them. And when they're running on the Bucks, they're scoring. Right, that's that's the principle we're dealing with here. The the Bucks also aren't getting any offensive rebounds. They're close to the bottom of the league in offensive rebounding percentage, so they're not racking up offensive rebounds. They're not preventing transition opportunities. They're getting the worst of both worlds. So I don't know what type of team this Bucks team is going to be, but Adrian Griffin is right. You either need to crash the glass or you need to get back. The problem is right now the Bucks aren't doing either. They're not tying down offensive rebounds and they're not getting back to defend in transition. I don't care which one the Bucks want to do. If the Bucks want to get back or they want to crash the glass, but they got to pick one and they got to be better at whatever one they pick. Does that make sense? Now I hate to just harp on the defense. The Bucks had an awesome comeback win last night. Milwaukee Milwaukee needed it. That Brook Lopez three that went in, the city of Milwaukee is like, oh thank God, we've 
we've dealt with enough this week. We needed that shot to go in. Damian Lillard, 18 fourth quarter points. He scored 17 of the Bucks' last 21. And, and I, I don't want to say this all season, but I think it's an important point of discussion. The Bucks don't win that game if Drew Holiday is the point guard. That's the difference of Damian Lillard. Damian Lillard was brought in to help close games and score in crunch time when things get tight. Did that last night. Did it against Philly. He's done it a couple of times this year. That's been a theme in all of the games that they won, which is okay because that's why they, that's why they brought Dame in. They brought him in to help close, to help seal games, to help score down the stretch when things get tight and things get tough. And if Drew Holiday is playing point guard for the Bucks instead of Dame, they don't win the game last night. It was really fun watching Dame in crunch time. They ran a lot of V action, uh, and different basketball entities might call it something else or something different. I've seen it written about as the V action, and that's something that the Bucks have adopted. It used to used to happen in Portland with Damian Lillard when he was there, and that's two high screeners, both of the Bucks' bigs. So in crunch time last night, it was Jay Crowder and Brooke Lopez coming out to the logo beyond the three-point arc to set basically a double screen for Damian Lillard. And that creates so much space that creates so much open area in the court behind those two screens that Dame is either going to get an open three point shot, or he's going to get a lot of room to operate right at the rim with a head of steam. And it's really impossible against a player as good as Damian Lillard for a defender to step up and contest without fouling. Even 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 a shot blocker, because if the shot blocker, assumedly the center or the four, that player is coming out with Jay Crowder and or Brooke Lopez to set the screen. And if they're switching, Damian Lillard can get a mid-range shot over him because he's faster and he's more nimble. Or he can blow by him to get to the rim, right? Or if that big goes under, right, Damian Lillard's got an open three-point shot. It's a really, really, really useful crunch time concept for the Bucs. They ran it a lot last night. And that's something that they should continue to run in the fourth quarter moving forward, even with Giannis out there. That's something that Giannis should embrace. Again, I want to see Giannis set more screens. I want to see possessions begin with the ball in Damian Lillard's hands. I don't want Dame on the wing waiting to get a touch because Giannis is dribbling, 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 dribbling. Let Dame run the point. And if you want to run uh, that V concept we saw a lot last night, bring Brooke, bring Giannis, or if Giannis is playing the five in crunch time, depending on the matchup, bring Jay Crowder, who I think is going to close for this team, even if it is not starting. Bring Jay Crowder, bring Giannis out, set two high screens, let Damian Lillard get underneath into that soft underbelly of the defense around the free throw line, and let him make decisions from there, and Giannis can just feel it out. Either he can cut, he can step out, he, he can keep gravity out on the wing, or he can distract a defender. That's a concept that they can run with Giannis. Giannis just needs to be a willing screener. When Giannis has been at his best, it's been in a screening capacity against another offensive creator. We saw it when they won the title with Chris Middleton. Chris Middleton's not that guy anymore, but Damian Lillard can definitely be that guy. So Giannis would be very wise to remember when that team was good enough to to compete at the highest level and win a title. Giannis would do well to remember his role and what kind of role he played on that team. Oh, and by the way, it worked pretty well. He scored 50 in a finals game. It's not really like he had to take a back seat. He was just being deployed differently, maybe in a little less sexy, glamorous way, but a much more effective way in a way that helped the Bucs win a lot of high leverage games and ultimately a championship. Let's take a five minute break. We'll come back. Talk Green Bay Packers and offense and Matt LaFleur next Wisco Sports Show. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network.
Wisco Sports Show. Appreciate you listening. Thank you for hanging out. A lot to come yet tonight. David Gasper reviewing the brew. Going to be here just after 5 o'clock. It's been a week or two since we've caught up with our buddy Gasper. Mike Clemens going to be here at 5.30. And then at 6 o'clock, Zach and Jesse, Temple and Heilprint. Get you ready for Wisconsin versus Northwestern, 2.30 this Saturday. Zach Camp Randall. So if you're in town for the game, swing by the red zone. See Evo and Nelson and company for the pregame. It's it's not really a formal pregame show, although it is on the radio. It's it's a party, so come party with us. It should be a great time. And you can go party with Zach and Jesse, although they'll be all official and formal and hosting a show and uh, breaking down the game and the tale of the tape and eye on the enemy and, you know, all those things. They'll be live at Monks and Sun Parade tonight. Go have a beer. Uh, go enjoy some of their drink and food specials. You watch the Thursday night game. You can watch the Bucks game. Uh, and I'm sure there's some college football action on tonight. I know the Mac is Tuesday. Last time I said I, I didn't know if there's any college football action, I got yelled at on Twitter for not being a holistic sports fan. So I should probably watch my tongue just a little bit. Not taking any calls tonight, but if you'd like to tweet me, you can at Wisco Grant. I want to talk Packers for a little bit before we get into the Brewers at 5 o'clock and then get to some of our guests, our guest contributors. You know, it's really interesting now without Aaron Rodgers around, and we've had half a season or so with a different quarterback, and it feels like we've actually got some distance between the Packers now and the Packers with Aaron Rodgers. It's really interesting to go back and think about our priors, right? What we used to think or what we used to say because of Aaron Rodgers, good or bad. I think there's plenty of examples of both. Um, You know, for example, because of Aaron Rodgers, there were years where I wouldn't really worry too much about the offensive line. And I would worry less about the wide receivers. Now we would still have concern about the wide receivers. Like is Devonte Adams, you know, himself enough Is Alan Lazard good enough to be a number two. And, you know, we would worry about the O-line to a degree like, Oh, it's the NFC championship game. Maybe Dan- Dennis Kelly is a problem at right tackle or left tackle or whatever. But for the most part, for most of Rogers tenure in green Bay, you're making a lot of money. You're really great. So deal with the deficiency on the O-line. Deal with the deficiency of wide receiver. That's what the money's for, right? Uh, another example of the Aaron Rodgers effect, just Aaron Rodgers being around. And I brought this up to Bill earlier today. I think it's funny. People just expected Zach Wilson to get markedly better because he's in the presence of Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> what a feather. What a feather in Rodgers' cap. If that doesn't speak to how good Rodgers has been for so long. I I don't know what will. Zach Wilson was awful last year. Aaron Rodgers gets to town. He's there for a couple of months. Aaron Rodgers gets hurt, and people say, well, you know, Zach Wilson's had time to learn from Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I I could, you know, hang around the Albert Einstein. That doesn't make me an expert in in math. It just means, I don't know, maybe I'd, I'd pick up some funny expressions from Albert Einstein. That's about it. But Aaron Rodgers is that good that people thought, well, Zach Wilson learned from Rodgers. Right, the example that I want to talk about, the example of, of the Aaron Rodgers effect, if you want to call it that, is that we thought last year, and maybe even the year before, to a degree, we thought that Aaron Rodgers was keeping us from the Matt LaFleur offense. It's like, well, I want to see the Matt LaFleur offense. I, I want the Packers to run the Matt LaFleur offense, but Aaron Rodgers won't let it happen. Uh, I think there's an ounce of truth to that. But but I also think on on one hand the idea of the Matt Lafleur offense was a bit overblown. It just just ask Matt Lafleur; he'll tell you. Right, coming into this season, 
He said, well, what, you know, now we're going to see your offense. He's like, what do you mean my offense? It was split between me and, and Rogers. It was a group effort, right? That's what Matt LaFleur said before the year. The idea of the Matt LaFleur offense. How silly is that? I think 2019, LaFleur's first year with Rodgers, I think that was a bit of a restart. Now they happen to win 13 games and win a playoff game. I'll take it. But I don't know if fundamentally that was a great team. They were probably closer fundamentally to a 500 team than a 13-3 and team, which is what the boys from Pro Football Focus said that year, and we're all like, you're full of it. Uh, the Packers ended up in the NFC Championship game, so who's really right? Uh, who knows? But I, I don't think that 2019 was terrific. 2020, I, I think that was the year that Rodgers bought into the offense most. I think that was Rodgers and Matt LaFleur's best year together. Now, that year also coincided with a lot of empty stadiums, and I think that helped boost offense as well. But Rodgers bought into the offense most in 2020, mixed in some improvisation and some brilliant plays of his own accord. I thought 2020 was the best mix. 2021, there was a little bit of regression. No David Bakhtiari. I think some bad habits started to bubble to the surface for Aaron Rodgers, especially later in the year against the Browns and the Ravens. They, they really came close to losing some games they, they probably should have lost. Um, and then last year, you know, it all kind of fell apart. No Adams, no Bakhtiari, young wide receivers. And, you know, to make it all worse, Rodgers gets hurt. The idea of the Matt LaFleur offense was maybe a little bit overblown a little bit not 100 overblown but maybe a little bit overblown what isn't overblown and what is totally real is that a head coach and a quarterback need to buy in together right so so maybe you know for the last three years we talked about well the Matt LaFleur offense Aaron Rodgers won't run the Matt LaFleur offense okay well let's not word it like that let's word it like this a head coach and a quarterback need to buy in to the same offense together Hand in hand, right? A quarterback, and I've said this six ways to Sunday for the last however many months, a quarterback needs to play within structure, buy into concepts, and accept some sort of offensive system and formula and play within that system and formula. Look at Caleb Williams right now. Caleb Williams, brilliant. Like, makes some unbelievable throws, but he's struggling to win. And part of that is because his defense is awful. Part of it is because his offense isn't sustainable. It's based on him being a magician, and even the greatest quarterbacks can't be a magician all the time. I think that's part of the reason that Rodgers and the Packers came up short in the playoffs sometimes. You know what wins in the playoffs? Boring. Mechanical, structural, systematic. Rodgers sometimes like to freelance a little bit too much, and a little bit of freelancing is okay. So while a quarterback needs to play within structure, a head coach also needs to realize that quarterbacks aren't robots, and there's some improvisation that's healthy. And some improvisation is needed. It, it's, it's a balance, right, between structure and out of structure. There's a give and take. I, I wanted Rodgers to play within structure and be more consistent. But I also probably the last couple of years needed to remember and remind myself, Matt LaFleur is an idiot if he expects his quarterback to be a robot and just read the teleprompter. Right? And it's that balance. We need to find a balance. This is why Brady was brilliant. Brady was the perfect amount of game manager but could step up and make an unbelievable off-schedule, off-script throw if he needed to. That's what makes the best quarterbacks the best. And I think the best head coaches right now, I think of Andy Reid, and Andy Reid is, is an offshoot of Mike Holmgren in the way that there is an offense, there is a structure, but there's spaces within that structure for creativity and for improvisation. And Holmgren built it around Favre. Andy Reid is now built an offense around Mahomes that keeps the train on the tracks, and, and, and there's a framework there. But there's an expectation, there's an understanding that there's a little room for, for jazz, 
right, for pizzazz, right? So yesterday, I'm watching Joel Klatt on Colin Cowherd's show, and they're talking about Caleb Williams and his struggles, right, struggles. USC's great. Caleb Williams still going to be the number one overall pick, but he's taken some lumps the last couple of weeks. Joel Klatt talked about this. Uh, I clipped this part of the conversation originally to send to Ben Kenny because Ben Kenny and I are both Joel Klatt, Colin Cowherd stands. But then I realized, like, I should play this on the show. This is exactly, exactly the point I often try to talk about with quarterbacks and with head coaches collaborating on an offense, playing within structure, being a game manager to a degree. I've said multiple times during the season, game managers are cool. Game managers win. Uh, now, I want my game manager to be talented, ideally, be able to make great throws out of structure, but the basis, the foundation of the offense needs to be here. Here's Joel Klatt on Colin Cowherd's show yesterday. This is so the good. The one thing Caleb's going to have to do, and this is where he's actually regressed this year. Where, where, need, where? It is he tries to do too much. Well, hero ball's there. Hero ball is there, and, yeah. and he can't do that at the next level. Again, why is J.J. McCarthy taking the next step? What's making Bo Nix so good? Why is Michael Penix succeeding and playing so efficient? is because you've got to play within the offense first yeah. before you can take the offense to another level. So if you're reading out a concept and number one is open, give them the ball. Now, if you're reading out a concept and the first read is open, give them the ball. Now, I'm watching this at home last night. I'm going, oh, my God, this is killer. Now, now, do you hear that bar? Do you hear that absolute bar from Joel Klatt? You got to play within the offense first before you can take the offense to the next level. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm trying to say, right? Quarterbacks need to buy into an offense, and they need to run a system, and they need to be a game manager to a degree. But once you have that foundation, and once the quarterback and the head coach are, are attached and they're working on, on the same you know, bit of, of course material, then you can add in little touches and little, little dashes of, of your own style and, and your own creation, but the foundation needs to be there. And I wonder right now with Jordan Love, you know, it's it's been a little messy week by week. And, and obviously it's not all Jordan Love's fault. He's playing with a bunch of kids. His offensive line has been in limbo. His running game for the most part this year has been anything but stellar. You know, I want to see Jordan Love under center, hitting reads, hitting his back foot in the pocket, bam, delivering the ball. There's my first read. It's open. I'm taking it. First read's not there. There's my second read. It's open. I'm taking it. I want Jordan Love to sit in there and deliver the bullets where the bullets are designed to go. I think week by week, it's getting a little loose. The footwork's starting to decay just a little bit, getting a little hoppy was the term that Dan Orlovsky used on ESPN earlier today. We were talking about that on Bill's show. Jordan Love needs to play a boring, within-structure game, and Matt LaFleur needs to scheme some things up for him. We talked about this yesterday. Jordan Love has been tremendous. And he's been really, really effective when the Packers have used motion. And all of last year, I was told, well, Aaron Rodgers doesn't like motion. That's why the Packers don't use motion, even though statistically it's always helped their offense be more effective, be more efficient. Well, now Aaron Rodgers is gone. The motion has been really useful, and yet I feel like there's not a lot of motion. I feel like there's not a lot of play action. Come on, Matt LaFleur. Let's see what you got a little bit. This is, this is a collaborative effort here. I want Jordan Love to play within structure and deliver the ball where it's supposed to go. But Matt LaFleur, you got you to call the good plays. Not to, not to boil football down to a very basic idea. But, dude, you got to call the good plays. You got to put your quarterback in a situation to drop back and, bam, deliver the ball. Or as uh, Joel Klatt said at the end of this interview, and I love this so much. So, 
If you're reading out a concept and number one is open, give them the ball. Now. Now. Don't hesitate. Hit your back foot. Three-step drop, five-step drop. Pow. Hit it right away. I want Jordan Love to play within this offense confidently, but Matt LaFleur's got to meet him halfway and, and call some plays and scheme some things up to help him feel confident. It's 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 a it's a 50-50. It's a collaborative effort here. And maybe with Aaron Rodgers in town the last couple of years, I put too much of the onus on Aaron Rodgers. Play within structure. Play well. Matt LaFleur, let's give him a reason to get excited about playing within structure. That's what Andy Reid does so well. That's what Mike Holmgren did with Favre so well. It's 50-50, and I need Matt LaFleur and Jordan Love to meet each other in the middle this Sunday against Pittsburgh. All right, three minutes. We'll come back, wrap up hour number one of the Wisco Sports Show next. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Wisco Sports Show. Appreciate you listening. David Gasper, Mike Clemens, still to join the show. Loaded second hour. I want to talk about the Brewers coming up after our 5 o'clock break here. We'll get an update from Zach. And we talk a lot about the Brewers this week because Craig Council has uh, gone to join the Cubs. And we'll talk about that with Gasper, our buddy coming up. But also Ken Rosenthal is at the GM meetings this week. Sell? Sell, sell, sell. Fire sale for the Brewers? Oh my gosh, there's a fire! Sale in in Milwaukee. Virtually any player on the roster is apparently up for grabs. I'll tell you more. I'll give you more details. I'll tell you exactly what Ken Rosenthal said. Because I don't just want to scream the Brewers are about to tear it down. We'll see. I don't know. But the vibe coming from Ken Rosenthal, who's an insider for The Athletic and for Fox, is not... It's not it's not promising for the Brewers trying to win a World Series next year. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. And Craig Council with David Gasper. We'll talk Packers with Mike Clemens. A lot still to come, not to mention Temple and Heilprin coming up at 6 o'clock on all these same stations. Talk Badger football. Oh, oh, baby, just park it for the next two hours. Wisco Sports Show, hour two next. The brightest light that shines, it's been you. I thought it was a gut seed victory. A lot of guys stepped up. These games you just find a way to win. Uh, that's what it comes down to do, and you know it's a total team effort. This is where Wisconsin gathers to talk sports. Packers, Brewers, Badgers, Bucks. The Wisco Sports Show is on the air. Now, here's your host, Grant Bills. That's the voice of Bucks head coach Adrian Griffin. I, I might I want to see some more bravado from this guy. Let's, let's let's be a little bit. I don't know. He's kind of meh. He's kind of milk toast. Now I don't put a lot of emphasis on winning the press conference. Uh, I, I think that's a little overblown. I would just like to avoid losing the press conference. You know what I mean? Let's project a little bit. You know who was projecting? My God, did you hear that update from our friend Zach Heilprin? W O Z N MadCitySportsZone.com. You might be thinking, uh, this voice, this man, does he have a show of his own that I can listen to? Oh, it's your lucky night. Temple and Heilprin coming up at 6 o'clock. They're live at Monks in Sun Prairie. So if you're listening on WOZN, our Madison affiliate, you can stop by. Go see him. Food, drink specials, Thursday night football, the Bucks game will be on, lots of TVs, and lots of space to spread out. Uh, the first time I went to Temple and Heilprin for the show and, and to hang out and you know, drink beers, I, I first thought, there's so much space in here. This is great. 
Because sometimes you go to a live broadcast or, you know, you go watch games somewhere and it's tiny. You're cramped into a corner. No, 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 not at Monks. Oh, you got space. You're going with a group. You can spread out. You can relax. And, of course, with Thursday Night Football on, albeit the Bears and the Panthers, uh, football's better than no football. And the Bucks on tonight to boot as well. So lots of reasons to go there. And, of course, the Badger talk and the Badger takes and analysis from those two second to none. That's the best reason of all. David Gasper reviewing the brew set to join us in about 10, 12 minutes. Going to talk with him about uh, some of the Brewers goings on, going ons. I think it's goings on of the week between Craig Council and and what we're about to talk about next. Uh, this isn't looking good for the Brewers. You know, one of my favorite movies is No Country for Old Men. I love that movie. And I think it's because I watched a lot of Westerns growing up. I remember I had to be in like fourth or fifth grade. I was quite young. I was in elementary school. We had a half day, which we didn't. I, I didn't go to public school for elementary school, so we were not beholden to the, the 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 times and the schedules of the district and all the other schools. So you know, other other kids, they'd have half days, they'd have days off, and you know, we're not at, not at St. Joe's Elementary. We're praying the rosary. That's that's not changing. What do you mean, professional development in service? Ah, no, in service. No, 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 we're praying the rosary. All right, we're having religion class. That's that's what, that's what my elementary school education consisted of but for whatever reason on this day we had a half day i'll never forget this and i walked with a buddy from st joe's to his grandma's house you ever been to menominee it's over off stout road kind of in that neighborhood by the culvers that side of town right the east side yeah east side of town all right and we get there and my buddy's grandma is like all right i have lunch i have cookie you know grandma stuff and then she said and boys i have a surprise for you and you know the mind of a young boy when you know, we're told about a surprise. We're like, oh, my God, it's an Xbox? No, it's, he didn't get, she didn't get us an Xbox. What it was was a VHS tape of the 1972 John Wayne film, The Cowboys. Wow. Were we underwhelmed, but then we sat down to watch it, and I was, I, I was captured. I was there. I felt like I was in eastern Montana on a cattle drive. I mean, I was transported. So then I told my dad we watched Westerns. Uh, we watched a John Wayne movie. He's like, oh, I'll show you a John Wayne movie. So I remember watching Big Jake, a True Grit, of course. El Dorado, which is one of the shallower John Wayne films, but still very good. Real Lobo. Uh, what other John Wayne movie? I've, I still haven't seen The Shootist. Uh, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is a dope movie. Right? Westerns are awesome. So I think that's why I love No Country for Old Men. And there's a reason I bring this up, by the way. The, the reason is anytime in the movie No Country for Old Men that uh, Chigger encounters another person you're just like oh damn this guy this guy's cooked like he he rolls into a room and and there's just someone sitting in a hotel room minding their own you're like oh god here we go it's about it's about to get cooked anytime antoine sugar which is uh who's the the actor the the spaniard who plays him i can't remember his name but anytime he crosses another person you're just like shoot Except for the guy who runs the shop. He actually, I mean, maybe the, like the highest stress scene in the entire movie. That's like the one guy he doesn't kill. Um, but that's how I feel anytime Ken Rosenthal writes a story that mentions our Milwaukee Brewers. Anytime I see a headline from Ken Rosenthal where it's like, what I'm hearing about the Milwaukee Brewers. You're like, shoot, we're cooked. Someone's getting traded. Someone's leaving. Someone's departing the organization. Bob Euchre's dead. We don't know it. You know, something like that. Something's always going on. Anytime Sugar would walk in with his suppressed shotgun and walk into a room, you're like, oh, this guy's cooked. Woody Harrelson's 
I mean, dead on arrival. And that's how I feel anytime Ken Rosenthal puts out something. So today we get a story from GM meetings, and it's Rosenthal. What I'm hearing in MLB free agency about the Brewers trades, Bobby Witt Jr., and more. You might be thinking, Grant, well, they haven't made any trades. Well, they made the Marcana trade, but certainly this is talking about trades to come. Here's what he wrote. Executives at this time of year are always careful to tell reporters that they are fielding calls on players rather than shopping them. And and now stepping away from Ken's piece for a sec, that's what we heard about Hader for years, right? Well, we'll listen, but we're not making outbound calls as if there's really that big of a difference. But in this business... With these people in the baseball world, there is a big difference. We're fielding. We're not shopping. Big difference. Okay, back to Ken Rosenthal. In that sense, the Brewers would say they are acting no differently than any club. But industry sources tell a different story. Those sources briefed on Brewers' discussions but not authorized to discuss them publicly. Okay, okay, well, hold on. (laughs) So... The next sentence would indicate, Ken, they spoke about them publicly. So I, I don't know how this went down. These sources briefed on the Brewers' discussions but not authorized to discuss them publicly say the team is open to moving virtually any player on the roster. The process effectively has begun with the Brewers sending outfielder Mark Canna to the Detroit Tigers for a pitching prospect. A continued teardown considering the Brewers' current position would not be without logic. It might even be the proper course. This is so funny, by the way. This is, this is, put this on the list of reasons the Brewers are the worst. Put, put, add this to the rest. The Brewers are tearing it down big time because they traded Mark Canna. Like, like most teams, it's like, they traded who? They traded away Shohei Otani? Oh my God, what are they doing? The Brewers deal Mark Canna in the baseball world. It's like, holy smokes, the Brewers are. The Brewers are bottoming out. It's Mark Canna, for God's sake. I'll keep reading. The Brewers possess a promising core of young position players with more on their way. Their formidable pitching staff, however, is in a precarious state. Ken Pack is thesaurus to GM meetings here. Right-handers Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff are under club control for only one more season. Closer Devin Williams for two. And the Brewers might not even offer Woodruff a contract, knowing he might be out for most or all of next year after undergoing shoulder surgery. So again, they might just non-tender him because they effectively right now with arbitration, they'd be, you know, pay him like 10 to 12 million bucks just to rehab him, which is what happened with Knable a couple of years ago where the Brewers like, well, we're not paying you to, to heal up. Go do that somewhere else. Not on our dime, please. A two-year deal for Woodruff might be a solution for Milwaukee if the pitcher were willing to entertain such an offer. But Woodruff, who stands to earn approximately $12 million in arbitration, yep, got it, got that, nailed it, might prefer to force the issue. He would become a free agent if the Brewers not tendered him, able to negotiate the same type of two-year deal with any club. A trade, if the Brewers could pull one off, at least would enable the team to recoup some value. As for Burns, the Brewers could keep him. God knows they need him in case they make the playoffs. They will need a pitcher to start game one and massively underwhelm. Ah, he didn't He didn't write that. Sorry, I added that in. Make him a qualifying offer at the end of the season and receive a 2025 draft pick if he signs elsewhere. But they would likely fail, fare better in a trade by avoiding a final year of arbitration and save a projected $15 million, according to MLB trade rumors. Then Willie Adamas and... Yelich isn't getting dealt. This is how I read this, and this is what I said to Bill earlier today when we talked about this from 10 to 2. When they say virtually any player on the roster, I mean, that makes sense. 
right? A trade of Willie Adamas makes sense. The Brewers are not going to be in a position, we assume, to contend next year. Willie Adamas' contract is running out. Willie Adamas plays a position and provides value at a position that's hard to find elsewhere. His value will be high because the market for other players like him is almost minimal. So it's like, hey, this house is for sale. How much is it for sale for? Well, 800 grand. Why? It's a dump. Well, because there are no other houses. It's the same principle, right? You can tell that I'm really into real estate, by the way, with a, with a detailed analogy like that. So Adamus would make sense. Burns and Woodruff both make sense. Williams would make sense. You know, even if the Brewers were to deal uh, uh, Weimer or uh, Mitchell, there's even a situation where they deal one of their younger outfielders for other prospects at other positions or other arms because they have a, a little bit of a glut in the outfield. So there's a realistic world in which the Brewers trade veterans, there's a world in which the Brewers trade young players. I mean, they just have a glut of players, and they got to align their timeline, align their roster to make sense as it fits together. Really, the only players that I think would be untradeable or unthinkable in a trade is Yelich, because I don't think anyone wants to take on that money. He was, fi- he was fine last year. He was good last year. It's not like he's a complete black hole of a player, but it's a lot of money. William Contreras because he's under club control for a couple of years, and you just get a lot of value out of a catcher, especially one that's got so much road in front of him, so much club control and cost control. And Freddie Peralta, you paid Freddie Peralta a really reasonable contract for the return that you're getting, and you need starters because Burns might not be here. Woodruff's not going to be here, and even if he is here, he's not going to be on the mound. And other than that, Aaron Ashby, Colin Ray. Again, I own a lot of Ethan Small stock. I'm trying to figure out what I should do with it. Right, so Freddie Peralta is probably someone that will stick around. Yelich, Contreras, and Peralta. Anybody else, I-, I could see the Brewers wheeling and dealing, and it would probably make sense. In fact, it will almost certainly make sense. You know, this is not the offseason to go spend big. Uh, and, hey, silver lining, West Bend the silver lining, if the Brewers decide to rebuild, everyone that's been complaining about bites at the apple, well, here you go. Now we can tear it down and rebuild. Typically, the rebuild follows a, a period where we go all in, uh, so we're getting, you know, we're, we're getting, we're getting the bad part without ever really experiencing the good again, very brewers. But if you're against bites at the apple and you want the team to be more intentional, well, today's your day. Looks like it's going to happen. I'm not sure how I feel about it. David Gasper reviewing the brew. How does he feel about this? Craig council going to manage the Cubs and a potential rebuild this off season. We'll talk about all of this and more. David Gasper reviewing the brew joins the Wisco sports show next. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Wisco Sports Show, Temple in High Oprin, about 40 minutes away. Badgers talk. They're getting ready to face Northwestern. And, of course, Zach and Jesse will have to talk all about that uh, disappointing loss to Indiana last weekend. They're live at Monks and Sun Prairie, so stop by and see them on the way home. Food, drink specials, Thursday night football, Bucks game will be on. So go support the show, go hang out, be a fun time. Mike Clemens will join us in about 15 minutes here. David Gasper is back reviewing the brew. And, Gasper, honestly, I'm kind of glad that we waited until later in the week because we have more because we have more to talk about now. Like, if you would have came out on Monday or Tuesday, we'd complain about Craig Council, and that would be fine. But today, we get to complain about even more, you know? We get to complain about even more, you know? Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, the, oh there's plenty of uh, plenty of complaining going on. Plenty of uh, uh, plenty of takes. A lot to uh, to digest and process. And uh, it, it's been a very tough couple of days for for everyone in in Brewers Nation. Really. Do you want to start with the bad? Do you want to or start the really bad? Do you want to start with council or do you want to start with a rebuild maybe on the horizon as we learned from Ken Rosenthal today? Oh, is there any good? I don't think <laughs> no. there is, though. I think there's no. only bad for us to start with and, and go with, to, to be honest. Yeah, why don't why don't we start with Craig Council? And this is such a cop-out first question of the interview question, but I have to ask it. You saw the tweet from, I think it was Rosenthal on Monday, Council to the Cubs. What what was the first thing out of your mouth? What, what did you, How did you react? How did you react? Oh, the first word out of my mouth, uh, I cannot repeat on the air. Um, that's that much is for sure. Uh, it's I, I couldn't believe it um, of all places uh, for him to go. Um, like there was a fleeting thought in my head when, when that few minute window where we found out he wasn't going to the Guardians. He wasn't going to the Mets, mm-hmm. but then he wasn't going to the Brewers and he was going somewhere that didn't currently have a vacancy. So you're just kind of wondering, well, well, where is he going? You know, it's like, like how awful would it be if he went to the Cubs or the Cardinals? And then all of a sudden he's actually going to the Cubs and it's, it, you, you can't believe it. You, you wonder what, what happened? Why, why is he doing this? I mean, after all these years, after everything that, that Craig and, and the Brewers ha, have been through, a, after everything that this rivalry has meant, that he knows this rivalry means, and still, at the end of the day, he chose the Cubs. And then it comes out that he did not give the Brewers a chance to match. And then, then Tom Berducci reports that the Cubs were his dream job all along uh, to just twist the knife even further. Um, it, it, the way this all shook out, it, it, it shows so poorly uh, on Craig Council from the, from the perspective of, of all of us on, on the outside. But one thing that, that I'm kind of wondering now, too, what happened between Craig Council and the Brewers to make Council make such a below-the-belt FU kind of move by going to the Mm -hmm. Cubs without even giving them a chance to counter and just immediately jumping and trying to to go through all that. Because something had to have happened, logically. Everything that that Council's been through, everything that, that we've known about Council from seeing him over the years... For him to make a move like this, something changed. So something had to change either with Council or in his relationship with the Brewers because that's the only logical explanation I can see as for why he would make such a below-the-belt move to the Brewers. He knew this would be the one team that would hurt Milwaukee the most, and he did it anyway. So I have to share a theory with you, so I and I'm going gonna, gonna to turn you down because I'm getting my audio looped back through, so I'm just going to turn you off. But I can see your face. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to this. But I, but I have to say, so when, when this happened on, on Monday, I talked to our friend Hunter Baumgart, your fellow on, on the Brewers beat. And I said, Hunter, this, this, must be, uh, this must be an answer for something, the word I'm looking for. This is a reckoning, right? The Brewers, there's something between the Brewers and Council that happened. And Hunter's like, yeah, there's got to be. There's no way this would, this would be Council's choice unless he was purposefully trying to stick it to the Brewers. I asked around, and I'm not reporting anything, but I asked multiple people, 
And from more than one person, they're like, no, by all accounts, the relationship was good between Brewers ownership, Brewers leadership, the general manager. There was no rift. There was no beef. Council just wanted what he wanted and he didn't care. And that's why, like, look, Mark isn't a perfect owner and the Brewers are not always perfect. But that just this just seemed like a selfish villain like move from council. Yeah, that, that's certainly how it how it appears. Um, that, that's certainly how it's it's certainly playing out for for the fan base. Because I mean, when Craig Council comes back to Milwaukee as, as a manager of the Cubs, and it, it's still it, it feels weird to even say that uh, he's going to get booed mercilessly. We all know it. You you and I know it. Everybody knows it. He's going to get booed. Should. Uh, mercilessly yeah and you know it's you know there may be a few people that cheer but for the most part it's it's not going to be um from from what i've heard from from some of the people i've talked to um that that kind of know about what's going on it's you know there was something that that the brewers did um like like there's something on the brewers in this the brewers are not completely innocent there is something on their end what it is i have no idea um but but there is there is something they're not a completely innocent party but it's definitely a a heel turn and and a villain move uh for council and unless he's willing to tell everybody what it was uh, that that causes what it is that the Brewers did either to him or, or to the team, uh, whether it was you know the hater trade or, or whatever. Unless he tells us, we have no choice but but to but to <laughs> see the information in front of us of Council just becoming the villain. You suck. Yeah, you suck. Yeah, yeah. You're dead to us. That that's what it is. I, I, I put it out in in my article this morning on, on reviewing the brew, just kind of trying to talk through the emotions that that we've all been feeling, and it's like like it all comes down to like, like Craig Council, you're dead to us. You were one of us for for so long, and just just a member of the community, like the the two, like the team, the community all together. And growing up, Whitefish Bay, the Borner Brewer thing, and still he ends up choosing the Cubs, and it's a dream job, and and all of this, and now it's it it it's your dead to us. That that's the prevailing sentiment from Brewers fans. Yeah, and and council defenders, it's probably not the correct wording, but people who would defend this decision from council say, well, he got more money, he gets to stay close to his family, gets a bigger payroll, great. Then I get to say screw you, and I and I get to hate you because you went to a rival. I, I guess that's Craig's right. I guess that's the fans' right. If he had gone to twenty eight of twenty nine other potential teams, if he had gone to Cleveland, if he had gone to New York, if he had gone to Houston, if he had gone to any of these other places, the prevailing sentiment would have been, well, congratulations, mm-hmm. good good for you getting the mm-hmm. money. So long, see ya, good luck. But the Cubs, where where he went. And how he went there is is the issue. The ones who get all upset be like, well, you know, you would take an extra two and a half million a year, wouldn't you? You're missing the context. Agreed. You're missing the, the Agreed. whole context of the situation. It, it's not just the money that played a part in this. There, there's something deeper going on. It, it's not just the, the oh, a record contract. 
There's more to it. You're missing the point. And also, our jobs aren't professional sports. Professional sports are, is this insane business with lots of factors at play. You're an accountant. You work at a car dealership. That's it, not the same. It's not the same. So people who say that, they're missing the point. Gasper, I only got five minutes left with you or so, so I want to ask you. Ken Rosenthal put out a story earlier today basically saying the Brewers are looking at trading virtually anyone. And by virtually anyone, I, I don't know why it would make sense for them to trade Contreras. I don't think it would make sense for them to trade Freddie Peralta. And I don't think there is a natural uh, benefiting trade for Christian Yelich. Other than those three guys, I could see them trading anyone. And I think it would make sense for them to trade anyone. And I think if Brewers fans were honest, it makes sense. It's like, uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that, I, I suppose we should have expected news like this going into this offseason. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of been the Brewers' position by and large for, for several years. They're open to listening on, on virtually anyone. There, there's no one that's untouchable for the right price. Um, you know, for, for some of their key guys, they're going to place higher prices on. They're going to want overpays for. Uh, but, yeah, like, like anyone can be had for the right price. You know, I think the Brewers do have a, a solid core. I think they are going to be transitioning to that younger group. Um, you know, the, the potential trades of, of Burns and Peralta getting mentioned would, was very surprising. Um, you know, Burns, okay, yeah, I, I see where they're coming from there. But Peralta, I, I don't see how trading Peralta makes you any better in the future. I mean, you got potentially three more years of very cheap salaries. For a guy like that, I mean, why wouldn't you why wouldn't you keep him? That, that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Burns, I'd get Adamus. I, I would get, um, you know, maybe they trade one of those guys um, and just kind of try to continue to, to retool. There's no reason for them not to be competitive. You know, as Mark Atanasio has, has said, you know, year in and year out that they plan to remain continuously competitive. They don't want to step back. They don't want to, they don't want to rebuild. So, you know, even if they are trading, I don't think it's going to be a full tank and rebuild. I, I think they're going to try to transition to that young core. Um, but it's going to be a very, very wild off season. I, I think for the Brewers, because the, I mean, this is really going to define their, their direction, um, where they're going. I have no idea which way they're going to go. The, the, this is as, as, wild as wild card of an offseason i could i could have i could ever envision the brewers having i mean this could go so many different directions um and it's just going to be a roller coaster that we're going to have to ride through and figure out what they're going to do do you have a lean on manager last question do you have someone that you'd like uh, do you have a candidate that you'd enjoy seeing manage this team? Or, or I'm just kind of waiting and see. I don't know, baseball manager. You know, football coaches like, well, I, I would like this guy or that guy. And baseball manager is is different. I, I don't really know what to do with this list of candidates. Do you have one that you like more than the others? Yeah, there, there are a couple um, that are out there. Don Mattingly is one that I think would be widely respected and, and I think a good overall hire. Some people may complain about his previous record, but, I mean, he was on Marlins teams that he really had nothing to work with down there. Um, one one external guy I really do kind of like is Clayton McCullough, uh, who's Dodgers first base coach. Uh, he is well regarded for his work with young players. Um, and I think with the young players that the Brewers have, uh, the ones that came up this past year and the ones that they're going to have coming up next year and beyond, I think that would make sense uh, for a higher internal. Maybe Matt Erickson 
uh, who's been a manager up in up in Appleton for for several years, um, and he's he's been a coach in the organization for a while. I think that guy could make some sense. I've I've heard a dark horse candidate of Walker McKinvin, who's their pitching, catching, and strategy coach. He's he's been in the dugout for the past several years. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a guy that that they're reportedly really high on. Um, so that may be a dark horse name to watch. But of the external guys, I really like Clayton McCullough. Um, and then internal Matt Erickson, I, I think could get a real shot. Do you have anything you'd like to promote any articles coming out? You got a podcast dropping anything that, that you're producing and, and creating about council or, or about this off season to come before I let you go. Yeah, we got, um, I, I got a seven managerial candidates, um, up on reviewing the brew. I got, I got my piece this morning, uh, about, uh, just 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 why this council exit hurts so much um, and something on the rumors from Rosenthal as well. Uh, we're recording a podcast tonight uh, for the Cold Brew podcast going over all of this uh, as well. It's going to be uh, quite interesting, I'm sure. So we're going to be doing that in a little bit. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's 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 a lot coming out. It, it's a busiest time of year right now for us, and it's uh, it's only going to get more wild. Yeah, this offseason, like you said, could go in a million different directions. Thank you for jumping on here, Gasper. We can work through some of these things together, and we'll talk soon, I'm sure. And I'll see you at the Kohl's Center. All right, yeah, thanks a lot, man. Take care. Take care. David Gasper, reviewing the brew. Appreciate him hopping on here after work uh, and giving us the rundown. He he messaged me last night. He's like, dude, I need to, can we please bitch? I'm like, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Come on. Let's bitch about council. Uh, and yeah, the beginning of the, that conversation. Well, do you want to talk about the bad news or, or the worst news? You want to talk about the impending rebuild or the fact that we just lost our hometown hero and our, our manager? Which one? Uh, real, real Sophie's choice. Real Craig's choice, as we should probably say in, in Brewers fandom. Let's take a five-minute break. I think we're going to be joined by Mike Clements. I think he's coming on. I'll shoot him a text. We should talk Packers with Mike. And then, of course, Temple and Heilprin coming up at 6 o'clock. A lot more of the Wisco Sports Show and a lot more great programming coming up in the next two hours, so stick around. We're back in five minutes. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Wisco Sports Show, 20 minutes and counting. Until we turn things over to Zach and Jesse, Temple and Heilprin live at Monks in Sun Prairie. Food specials, drink specials, Thursday night football tonight. The Bucks will be on as well. And of course, Badgers talk. Breaking down that loss to Indiana, which was rough. And a game coming up, Camp Randall, Saturday, 2.30 against Northwestern. So Zach and Jesse will get you primed for that as well. Mike Clemens will get us good and primed for Packers football this weekend. They'll be in Pittsburgh. Mike will be there to take in the game. Mike, welcome. How are you tonight? Pretty good. Um, uh, a little life in the locker room today. Uh, you've had Cassidy Hill from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel on the show, right? Yeah. Uh, when did Rasul Douglas get traded? Was that last week? The, yeah. The Craig Council News threw my timeline off. Yeah, she was on last week. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so one of the things that she does that's really kind of fun, besides being a solid football reporter she does kind of feature things and she brings in this camera this like video camera mm-hmm. and so today she was having uh packer players just got an she like a prop she got a little chalkboard and she'd get one guy against another one doing tic-tac-toe hmm. 
And, you know, these guys, I mean, if they smell a chance to do anything to compete, they're yeah. in. They're in. <laughs> and and it's so funny to see these 25-year-old millionaires, you know, either uh, just eat up some guy at tic-tac-toe or, you know, can't win for their lives in you know, a little kid's game like that. And she got that all on video. And I, I've, I've got, I'm here to tell you that Romeo Dobbs, who's kind of a low-key guy, some of the big, some of the best celebrating dancing I have seen in quite a while. I really? Oh man, it's, it's it's a taunting flag just waiting to happen. <laughs> well, that's he gets it out of his system in the locker room. That's why he's so composed on the field. I think she posts these on on TikTok. Uh, usually, uh, they're very fun feature kinds of things, and it just shows another side of the guys. And you know, after a four game losing streak, it's nice to have a little levity in in the locker room like that. But, yeah. So what's your impressions of the Steelers? What what kind of team are they? Because they're not getting as much prime time as they have. It's, it, like the only headlines is you see more Matt Canada bashing their offensive coordinator, right? Yeah. Uh, my, I guess, 30-second impression of the Steelers is that their defense is very good, but they can't stop the run. It's mostly really solid play on the back end, and T.J. Watt and Cam Hayward just destroy everything in the pass rush. And offensively, they're pretty similar to the Packers. I think I would take Jordan Love over Kenny Pickett at this point, but it's close. They're pretty terrible for three quarters, and then Kenny Pickett seems to have a way to make some big throws in the fourth quarter, and that's been enough. But, Mike, this Pittsburgh team, they're 5-3, and three, but if you flipped the results of all of their one-score games, they would be 0-8, which blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's spot on. Hayward will line up at the right defensive end. And uh, don't forget about Alex Smith, too. He's like the strong side linebacker mm-hmm. out there along with Watt. And uh, and so when you watch them, it's like, oh, my God, that, because that front seven just can smother a quarterback and can shut down a run play from time to time. But then if you, if you, if you just make the right call and spread them out, you can, you can get 15-yard runs up the middle. Yeah. Uh, or you can, you can, you know, it seems like they're a little weak on the back end of their secondary when you watch it. Now, I'm not much of a stats guy, but the one thing that I could figure out was this, is um, they're great at keeping teams off the scoreboard, like, you know, under 20 points uh, or less. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not so great at, at uh, time of possession. They're not great at, at getting off the field on third down. And so, you know, I saw one of these guys um, that covers the team in Pittsburgh say, yeah, you know, they're running kind of a bend-don't-break defense over there. You know, so that's Mike Tomlin. <laughs> and then Tyler, is it Austin uh, is his name? He's been an assistant with Mike for several years. He's back at being defensive coordinator. Um, and it's like when I hear crap like this, you know, oh, we're a bend-don't-break defense, like what is that? What does that really mean? Yeah, that means you're not I, very good, is the well, what I hear. Yeah, well, you know that, that's that's some of the stuff that they were coming up with um, about five years ago with Mike Pettin. You know? Yeah, they used to say that. Some, so I so I said to Little Floor, is that is that is that like a sports journalism thing, or is that a real thing in the NFL? Well, as long as you keep people out of the end zone, I mean that ultimately um, that's what it's all about is the points, and they just. I don't view them as a bend-don't-break defense. I think they've given up some explosion plays, but they've made so many explosion plays, you know, on the defensive side with all the takeaways and, um, you know, especially late in games, it seems like the defense comes away with a 
a huge play that ultimately ends up allowing them to win the game. Well, and, and the Steelers, I was going to say this, Mike, they might not be tremendous defensively uh, down in and down out, but they could make three to five massive impact plays over the course of four quarters that washes every other play away. You know what yeah. I mean? They're just three to five massive impact game-breaking plays to the point where now all the other plays don't matter. Yeah, and I'm watching tape of their last game. By the way, they're coming into this with a nice break after playing on Thursday night football. Uh, they uh, you know, invited the Titans into Pittsburgh. And was it uh, Will uh, Levitz? Did oh, Will Levis, yeah. Yeah, the new quarterback. He just got named starter now in Tennessee after this performance. I mean, the kid's moving the ball. It's a nice, strong arm, accurate passes. You know, and Derrick Henry getting his yards from time to time on the outside, on the outside. And uh, then ball in his hands, you know, game ready to go there. He's got, he just got his, needs four points or something like that. And he throws one over the middle, and it looks like it's going to be, you know, a nice reception and probably a touchdown. And, you know, one of those veterans in the secondary there just takes it away. I think it was McFarland. No, no, it was one, another guy. But, you know, they get an interception, game over, game mm-hmm. over. And that's the way, like you say, they're winning these games. Uh, LaFleur, a little on the crabby side. You know why? He's got a nasty cold. Interesting. Uh, really? A little, yeah. Like today, it's like, hey, wait a minute, Jair Alexander. Did he? Did he practice today? No, no. Oh, he's down suddenly now with a shoulder injury. After a month with the back, somehow he came out of the Rams game with a shoulder injury. Uh, I saw him in his locker. He was not in the mood to talk, but he has missed practice the last two days. And so the question was, well, gee, coach, are, are you concerned now that Jair won't be out there? And he gave back a snippy answer where he said, uh, well, he's mispracticed the last two days. What do you think? Okay. <laughs> Craig Council asked, what do you think? Someone, just ask him. Someone needs his NyQuil, you know? Yeah, drink drink <laughs> some orange juice. Let's work on your immune system here, Matt. It's getting cold outside. Right. But, you know, in the meantime, uh, you know, you're going up against a, uh, an offense with Kenny Pickett, who can sling the rock, and uh, – Oh, it's like the wide receiver Pickens. I think he only had one pass his way that he caught. Uh, they got Allen Robinson out there. But, you know, Pickens was like so ticked off uh, that he didn't get more snaps in prime time mm-hmm. or, or, or receptions, it targets, that he, you know, he tweeted out something that said, free me, free me. Like he's really frustrated in Pittsburgh. Whatever the case, uh, that I mean, this would be an all-youth secondary against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, if Jair Alexander can't play on Sunday. So that's a little bit of a concern. There might be some gamesmanship between uh, Corey Ballantyne and Carrington Valentine. Maybe, maybe the Packers can weaponize that a little bit, confuse oh, the opponent. Yeah, yeah, we should. We'll, we'll tip off the Packers to the PR department. For, forward that along. You can take credit for it. Just, sure. just pass that along. Yeah, the gift shop. They could do something with a split T-shirt or something. Um, so the storylines here in Green Bay, um, you know, they felt like they achieved something even though it was against a Rams team where they cut the quarterback that they started for the game and side Carson Wentz. That's how desperate they are. Um, but at least they, at least they kept it together as, as through the penalties and those, those kinds of charges. And I, I think uh, you guys, some of that interview I did with John Runyon today, about him lining up on their uh, tush push, right? Mm-hmm. Today, did you use some of that on the show? Yeah, we, we broke it down. John Runyon is, is actually very interesting to listen to him talk. And oh. I, I don't mean to sound like I'm surprised, but I, I just don't know much about him. 
Oh, no, I, I think that kid's going to put a headset on someday. He's really interesting yeah. to talk to, yeah. Maybe we could talk, get in more on that tomorrow on Bill's show. But, uh, you know, we're talking about the penalties and what's the deal now with the you know NFL trying to get rid of the tush-push you know, quarterback sneaks in the league. Um, what else has we got here? Um, well, you know, Christian Watson seemed to always get hurt. And, of course, everyone wants to talk about T.J. Watt. You know, the Packers could have had him, and they went with Kevin King. Yeah, by the way, I was going back over Kevin King's the file I got on him. You know something? At 6'3", and how he would make he would make tackles head-on. We were in mm-hmm. Dallas, and he hit Ezekiel Elliott early in the game. Had to leave with a concussion, but he was brave. And he had those long arms, and he made some big plays. And then he made stupid plays, like the loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right? Yeah, He's always up and down and often injured. I think he missed 29 out of 80 games. Look, I, you know I, something? You know something? What's that? He's Christian Watson's built just like him. Yeah, well, and I like I remember I was at a Bucks game the night of that draft. I remember it was game six. They lost to the Raptors that year. They were down 24 and a half, came back, took the lead, and then lost. Whatever. But I remember them trading back, not taking T.J. Watt, and then they took Kevin King. And I was like, well, he's 6'3". He's big. He's fast as blazes. And he tackles. He's a willing tackler, which is what we've said about every corner the Packers have ever drafted, and it changes about a year into their Packers career. But I, I remember that draft pick, and I remember thinking, all right, those are good qualities. The Packers need a corner. All right, fine. And it obviously aged very poorly. Yeah, and what we're talking about is why didn't Ted uh, take the hometown kid and uh, T.J. Watt uh, at outside linebacker, and instead they took the corner out of Carolina? And the answer is... Um, and that was 2017. I think that was still Ted. And the answer was, guess who scouted that kid in Carolina? Uh, Brian Gutekinst. Uh-huh. So that that was part of the deal there as well. Um, and then this, so so you know that 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 because T.J. Watt is just just amazing to watch, just amazing to watch. Franchise player. Uh, what other stories? Oh, the Sean Ryan. Okay, so Sean Ryan was a third round pick out of UCLA. And when he showed up to camp last year, not that there should be anything wrong with this, but he had a crazy, huge, you know, bush of hair that was dyed like a bright blonde. Yeah. Crazy. And I think, you know, he sort of he kind of looks like a guy on the beach in Hawaii. Yeah. It's just his look. Okay, whatever. Wild and out there. But he doesn't have a very good camp. He only gets like one snap all season. And that's followed by around Thanksgiving. He gets suspended for the rest of the season for testing positive for an illegal substance. Not PED, which Wayne happened to say today. It was an illegal substance. So um, uh, so he gets suspended. And, you know, when that happens, you can lose the locker room. You can lose your teammates because they just said, man, that's dumb. Yeah. That's just dumb. Well, and, and Wayne said earlier today, you got to understand, and I thought this is great. I texted Bill during the interview. I was like, this is great stuff on Sean Ryan. Wayne emphasized he was behind the eight ball immediately. When he started yeah. as a rookie and, and we see that with players who get injured early on. It's really hard when you're behind the eight ball as a rookie right away to bounce back from that. But it seems like he's a good football player. I want to see him on the field against the Rams. Elton Jenkins had to drop out at left guard and they put in Sean Ryan because you know what? They're emptying the benches and they're getting a look at guys. Well, he should. Samari Torrey this weekend, healthy scratch. And they took a look at Malik Keith. So you see, they're already doing that. And Goodikin said they needed to do that when he had the press conference explaining Rasul Douglas. Do we have time to play two minutes of the Sean Ryan here? Yeah, we got a couple minutes. Yeah, okay. Sean Ryan. All right, so I, I, you know what? 
No one ever talks to this guy. I, I don't know why. But and he's you know he's down there with the linebackers and Preston Smith. The rest of the offensive uh, offensive linemen are at the opposite end of the locker room. I don't I don't know why, but I never see this guy talking to guys. But I said, hey, congratulations on getting in the game. And hey, you had that one player you handled, uh, Aaron Donald, the best in the business. And I said, so were you a little hyperventilating when they called your name and you had to go in there for, into the game? After the first one, uh, I kind of was able to get my heart rate down, just breathe a little bit. I think it was good being out there, you know, with Josh. You know, he kind of was like, hey, you know, it's all right. He, he kind of he calmed me down a little bit. Do you get enough snaps with him to feel in sync on the left side? Yeah, definitely. I'm, uh, I'm pretty comfortable with all of the guys, you know. We're a pretty tight-knit group of guys in the O-line room, so... Um, just being out there with them was more exciting just because I, you know, I was able to help the team go down there and score and you know, be successful. Was it 13 or 14 snaps you had, you know? Uh, I believe I had 10 regular snaps and 5 PATs, so 15 altogether, but hey, that's more than So to four. finish off the day, there's that one where you're against Aaron Donald. Yeah, a couple Hel- of Hello. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, that was that was wild. Uh, I didn't want to make it, you know, anything more than it was. You know, I was supposed to do my job. He's going to do his job, and I guess. Uh, so, I mean, he's still just incredibly upper body strength, but it looked like your feet were exactly where they needed to be for leverage, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's. I knew. We all knew going into it that he was really good at getting leverage, and he's very strong. So, you know, my plan. <laughs> As much as I, as I could have one, you know, going in there real quick is just get my hands on them and, you know, pretty much just do my do play my game. Right. So yeah. whether it's you uh, and Elton Jenkins, you know, you're looking at that tape and envisioning, okay, here's what I need to do because yeah. here's where here's here's where guys make mistakes and then he takes advantage. Exactly. Yeah. So talking to all the guys, yeah. Talking to all the guys who played him before, they were like, hey, don't lean on him. Right, right. So I was like, okay, well, can't lean on him. Well, I can't play high against him because he's just going to, you know, push me right back. So I guess I just got to play perfect, <laughs> you know? Nicely uh, done, Sean. Thank you very much. He's a top 100 pick, Mike. This is a guy who should get some run this season. If we're evaluating, it's not like they're benching Elton Jenkins, who's amazing, like, Playing for John Runyon Jr., who's mostly just been fine in a penalty machine. Like, we got to see what this guy... I, I'm excited about this guy. I think he could be good. So, and Jenkins, coming back from a ACL, suffered a MCL sprain earlier this season, getting pretty beat up. But if he gets healthy for next year, do you know where he should be playing? Left tackle. And they need a guard. And that's where they, we could get excited. If this kid now could turn it around and go from third round to starting left guard next to Elton Jenkins. That would be a beautiful thing. Uh, I can't believe the stat of the week is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. The last time the Green Bay Packers won a football game in Pittsburgh was? 1970. But I've yes. heard that before, so I'm cheating. I, I want to ask you before we're done, what were you doing in 1970, Mike? Uh, watching Bart Starr on TV losing to the Steelers. It was, Or maybe, I guess they won the game. It was That team was two years after Lombardi had left town. Phil Bengston, defensive coordinator, is head coach. I think he was fired a year or two after this. But, I mean, you look at the team photo. It's Bart. It's Ray Nitschke. It's Carol Dale. It's all the 60s Packers. It's, it's, it's that far ago. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable how long it is. 
And in the meantime, you talk to Jordan Love, who, you know, think about this. This dude's been running for his life. He's gone against Max Crosby from the Raiders, Aaron Donald the other day, and this weekend it's T.J. Watt. And, you know, we asked him, is this kind of a tough stretch in the Packers' schedule? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the NFL. Um, you know, I think every, every team has some good pass rushers, and you see them every week, and it's just, you know, I think we do a good job with having a game plan and being ready for those guys and what we're going to do to try and slow them down. But uh, that's the NFL. Everybody's pretty good. It's life in the NFL. It's hard to win in this league, Mike. I got to run. Uh, enjoy your travel to Pittsburgh. Enjoy the game, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Grant. Mike Clemens on Twitter, at Mike Clemens NFL. We'll wrap up the Wisco Sports Show next. This is the Wisco Sports Show with Grant Bills on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Wisco Sports Show, wrapping things up. Going to turn over the microphone to Zach Heilprin, Jesse Temple. They're live in Monks and Sun Prairie. So if you're driving around Madison, you're on your way home from work, go stop by, enjoy some food, drink specials, Thursday night football. Bucks will be on TV as well, and some great Badgers talk. Two of the best. The two best, if I'm being honest. Zach and Jesse. Talk to you all tomorrow, 4 o'clock. Never miss a Friday show.